Welcome to Gen Z Hoops. The Gen Z Basketball Coaching and Sports Business Show. On this podcast, you'll learn from professional players, coaches, and executives from all over the world and see the court in a brand new way. And now, joining you courtside, your Gen Z host, John Hartafillis. Joe, my man, what's going on? I'm great. I'm great, bro. Good to be here. Happy to see you. Everything's cool. Awesome having you on. I mean, when you reached out, I was just so excited, right? I mean, it's great how this basketball world kind of, you know, works and plays together, right? Everyone kind of knowing each other and it all coming full circle. So awesome having you on. I mean, obviously looking at your story, really, really cool. And the, the transitions you've made and everywhere you've kind of played, really can't wait to just kind of dive right into it. Cool, man. Yeah, me too. I'm excited. Let's get to so, it. So, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff. I and mean, I'm sure everyone always jumps into like asking about the NBA and professional overseas and all that cool stuff. But I'm more curious about your, you growing up, right? You're the first, number one, Taiwanese-born NBA player. But, right, growing up in Taiwan, like, what was that like and, and kind of falling in love with basketball over there? I mean, what, what did that look like for you? That, that's that, well, that was so cool to me. First of all, it was like nobody else's NBA journey in the whole world, for sure. Nobody. <laughs> so there's no, like, European-American uh, basketball player who's ever grown up in Asia. So I'm definitely the first to do that. Now, it has its own, like, stylistic elements of, like, how I learned how to play the game, which affected my personal game. But mostly it was the nuances of the experience. Like, I was born in Taiwan, but I grew up in Beijing. And I guess the number one thing to know is I was not surrounded by anybody that played basketball. Nobody. Wow. I wasn't plugged into the AU circuit. I wasn't plugged into the trainers. I wasn't plugged into coaches. I wasn't ranked. Nobody knew who I was, and I didn't know who anybody else was. All I did was play on dirt basketball courts, one-on-one, all by myself. I never played five-on-five. I watched Michael Jordan uh, videos every day. We barely got any NBA. And I was, like, living on the moon, basically, dreaming about going back to Earth to play in the NBA. That's wow. what it was. That's crazy. That's I've never heard anyone talk about that. I've all these episodes, right? So think about right being on the moon and then just coming here because it's funny. Like you've always heard people say, you know, Jordan learned from Dr. J and right, and like they've taken from other guys, right? Like you know, it's not like you grew up on an island. Would you kind of say that that's kind of how you grew up, like kind of on a basketball island almost, like kind of doing it all on your own? Bro, I grew up in basketball outer space. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's so cool. And then what, what was maybe that transition? Did, when, when was the first time maybe you found someone else that played basketball too? Like what, when, how old were you? All right. So just to clarify this, my brothers played basketball. My dad played basketball. And people at my school played basketball, but nobody played at any kind of high level. I couldn't travel right. within like 10, 20 miles, go to another school, go to a prep school, find a coach who has an expertise who can help me. I couldn't do any of that. That's what it was. It was just such a low level that to dream about the NBA was such a ridiculous thing to be dreaming. That's what the case was. Now I played basketball. Like I dabbled in five on five in the way that you would have dabbled in five on five in PE in school. Like, that's how I played five and five growing up. And it was frustrating because I knew that I needed something like 100x more on a daily basis competitive wise. And, and I was never going to get it. So that was really frustrating. So when did you end up getting that? Like, uh, what is, was it once you came over to the States? Like, what, what yeah, yeah. So, so I used to come to the States every summer and I would try to get in camp. So I used to go to like Maryland camp, eventually I went to five-star camp. And once I got to expose to like some of the high-level players, I'll basically take like one or two things from them back to China with me and work on them all day nonstop. Like it, it would just become, okay, I learned uh, one thing from Marcus Ginyard and everyone was, you know, hanging on his, hanging on his balls the whole camp. And I was like, all right, I'm going to be that guy next camp. So I would go to China for 10 months and work on that by myself on the playground all alone for three hours a day after school until I had it down pat, come back in the next summer and try to dominate guys. Like that's what I did. So it's so a five-star camp. I mean, those are all like legendary camps. How are you, like, how did you even find out about those to even get, get the chance to go there? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not that old. We had the internet back then, so like I was plugged in a little bit, but it was more like like dreaming. Like when you're in America, like everything's at your fingertips. But when you're overseas, especially in the late '90s and early 2000s, like everyone, everything was like a pipe dream. You had to plan like six months ahead. So five star, it was something I could do, but still, I had to plan really far ahead, and it became like the highlight of my life, like the highlight of my decade. Okay, so then what did like so like you said like not having AAU and stuff like high school right being like what did that look like for you and then right when you got to college like how did that recruitment process that must have been crazy that recruitment process <laughs> you can't well first of all I had no offers out of high school like none zero not a single Division one offer so wow uh, coming out of high school I was uh, seventeen years old so I was a little bit young I had not a single Division one offer four years later I was a lottery pick so I mean it's the most unbelievable like look I'm trying to take myself out of it I don't care that it's my story I'm just saying in a, as a sports story it's the most unbelievable sports story in the world so. Basically, I came to high school in, in America when I was a junior. I played two years and I didn't even play. Like when I came back, I didn't start on my team. I wasn't even a good player because I'd never played five on five before. Like the only thing I had done is, is sit around on the playground by myself, play one on one by myself and dunk the basketball. So I didn't know how to play. So the recruiting process was like nothing. It was like D3 schools talking about, oh, you're six, six, you know, you're six, seven. We want you to come play with us. And I'm like, dude, I'm trying to go to the NBA. Do people understand? But then they were like, no, Joe, you don't understand. You're not any good. <laughs> so that's basically what my recruiting experience was for me. People telling me I'm not good and me telling them, no, I'm really good at one-on-one -on -one all by myself when no one's around. So that was it. How long did it take you to maybe pick, like, right, they're, they're saying you're not good. How, how long did it take you to prove those people wrong and stuff? I mean, did it kind of happen that first year? No, it took, a, it took forever. I mean, my fresh, you're talking about in high school? Or in college. college. You to college. Yeah, in college. Yeah, it was an ongoing process. So every level that I went through, I had to take a long, painstaking time to prove myself. And part of it was because I had such a big learning curve. Because I didn't really start playing five on five basketball until I was 16. So I had a huge, crazy learning curve to overcome. Plus, growing up in China, you have some personal issues social from a socialization standpoint. I mean, I know you're from York. You can plug into places. You can talk to people. You can get to know people. Like growing up as like a social outcast overseas, it comes with its challenges when you get plugged into a culture like America, like in America. So when I would go places like high school, prep school, college, I went to prep school, by the way, I had to plug in. As a basketball player trying to excel on a team and with a coach, you got to get people to like you. And to get plugged in socially, that's a process. So that was something to overcome. The basketball learning curve was something to overcome. And then it generally would take me six months before I would get my feet wet. So I went to high school, couldn't get my feet wet for six months, couldn't find any success. Went to prep school, couldn't find any success for six months. Went to college, sat the bench my whole freshman year. My coaches were like perplexed. Like this kid has all the talent in the world, but he can't play, he can't socialize, he can't plug into the system, what's going on. It takes me time and it took me time. And to answer your question, it didn't all take off at any level that I was at until between six and nine months of me being there. You know, that's when I was able to put it all together. But the reason was because I was always working tirelessly behind the scenes. So whatever shortcomings I had, I wasn't playing for this, this, and that reason. I was always working on it at nighttime. So that eventually, it was just a matter of time for I would overcome it. That makes so much sense. And the biggest thing that I take, I mean, I coach, right, freshman JV basketball and all, right, when guys aren't playing, they get demoralized, they can kind of end their season right then and there. How are you overcoming <laughs> that, right? I mean, it happens all the time, right? You see guys, they don't play, they, they give up on the sport completely. How did you persevere through that, you know, waiting those six months? That's, it's pretty, six long months. Well, what people got to understand is like, that's who I was. So like when coaches were like, all right, we're going to drag this guy's name through the dirt. We're going to drag his minutes into the dirt. We're going to not play him, tell him he's not going to be nothing, not give him anything to chew on to make him feel good and, and fuel his ambition. They don't understand. That's where I'm from. That's where I'm from. Like, you know, you know, Br'er Rabbit, the story, they throw the rabbit in the briar patch and they're like, oh, we're going to get him. But he's like, you know, I'm from here. Like, this is where I thrive. That's where I thrive. Yeah. I, I grew up on the moon where nobody thought I was any good. Nobody knew who I was. I wasn't playing five five. I wasn't getting minutes. So when I'm on these teams experiencing that exact same thing, the coaches are like, oh, is this kid going to get demoralized? And I'm like, this is where I grew up, bro. Like, this is where I thrive. So spending those six months in like basketball purgatory at every level that I went through 
was really a place that I knew how to overcome the challenges of that space. I really thrived in that area. So it wasn't for me a matter of like overcoming the, the stress of that. It was more like enjoying the comfort of it and having patience, knowing that eventually I'm going to be all right. Only because I was working. The work is what gave, is what gave me the confidence to know that I'm, I'm getting out of this basketball purgatory at some point. So I'm going to clip this for sure and show this to my freshman, sophomore, whoever it is. I'm showing it to them. So hopefully they can take something from it because that's a, an inspirational story. And you obviously did, did it, right? You made, you made through on that. So in college, right, you had more than six months, right? Four years in college. So that, that right after that freshman year of, of basketball purgatory, so, tell me about sophomore year. That must have been a movie. All right. So first, it, it was three years. A, okay, a lot of people gotcha. forget this because they feel like my name was getting tossed around in NCAA circles for a while, but I was only there for three years. So sophomore year was my second year with John Beeline, who ended up going to Michigan. He ended up playing in, in coaching the NBA. I think he's going to be a Hall of Famer one day. Amazing coach. One of the headiest coaches I've ever had. In my opinion, should have been a pro coach his whole career. So my sophomore year was one of the craziest ups and craziest downs you could ever imagine in a basketball life. Look, I want to I take a minute to say this. People, when they talk about sports lives, about college players, about NBA players, about pro players, they trivialize and underestimate the impact of, of these truly monumental stories that we have to tell. Like, I'm going to tell you right now my sophomore about my sophomore year at West Virginia, West Virginia University. Like, do you understand the magnitude of that? Like, you coach, you coach in high school, right? Yep. You understand the magnitude of telling a story about, about playing basketball at West Virginia University? Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable. It's um, anything that I would have to say about it is unbelievable just to be there. So when I say like the most amazing high, what I mean is this, I dreamed about this for 10 years before I was there. So I can't believe that I'm there. And suddenly I'm starting on the basketball team playing for a future hall of famer, unbelievable high of my life. Couldn't believe it. And then unbelievable lows. I lost my starting spot. I lost the faith of all the coaches that once believed in me. I thought they were going to kick me off the team. Another player on my team who was younger than me took the spot who was going to be there for another three years. And I thought it would never come back to me. And I thought all my work was going down the tubes. And I didn't know anything about transferring at the time. Like I said, I grew up on the moon. So I thought I was going to be stuck there and go nowhere, not go to the NBA. So the highest highs and the lowest lows, and that happened at the end of the season when we won the championship in the NIT tournament. And I was relegated to, to the end of the bench, basically. It was a tough, tough, tough season for me. But it was 12 months before I got drafted. So something happened there. It, <laughs> Something happened there. <laughs> I, I, I gotta ask you what happened there because like, you, you were talking about adver facing adversity before that, but that's a different kind of adversity. Seeing at the end of the bench because you know you haven't got the, obtained those skills and you have to grind for it. That's different than the kind of adversity you just described. So that summer must have been like you know crazy. Like you know you must have been working out tirelessly. I mean, tell us about that and and what kind of prepared you for one hell of a junior season. Man, the world can't imagine what I did before that summer. The only people that could talk to you about it is my trainer that year and my teammates that year. Nobody could understand what happened that summer. And I'm not going to take credit for it. I'm going to give credit to two, three people. Number one, Bob Huggins, another future Hall of Famer who I, who I played for. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Back up. Four people. Number one is Eric Martin a coach at West Virginia, an assistant coach who came in. There was a coaching change. John Bielan went to Michigan. Bob Huggins and Eric Martin and his staff came to work with us. Put his arm around me and said, Joe, I see your talent. You're my boy. And I'm going to help you. He just come off a stint of 10 years playing pro in Europe. He's exactly what I needed. He plugged into my life and gave me the ins and outs, the when to zig, when to zag, told me what to do. Number two, Bob Huggins, same, put his arm around me, said, Joe, you're too skinny, but you're talented beyond belief. You get your job done in the weight room and I'll get you to the NBA. That's what he said to me. And he meant it. And he believed that he believed in me. And every day he told me, Joe, I'm not going to cheat you, which meant he's going to ride my ass, which he did. It was Yo, you can't imagine what it's like to play for Bob Huggins when he wants you to succeed. When Bob Huggins wants you to succeed, you can't imagine what this is like. It's, it's, it's what you imagine about Bob Huggins, but multiply it by 10 because he rides you. 
He won't let you cheat yourself. Okay, so, so those are the two people. The third person, unfortunately, is someone who recently passed away, which was my trainer at the time. And he took me through the ins and outs of what Bob Huggins wanted from me, which was to put on weight and get strong. See, he had just coached Jason Maxiel. He just coached Kenny Martin. He'd gotten these guys to the NBA, turned them into battle toads, turned them into monsters. And he said, Joe, you're next. Okay, so he took my trainer aside, took me aside, and we said, this is the program is what we're doing. I gained 25 pounds. I became a, an animal an animal. Only my teammates could attest to what happened. And the fourth person was basically my workout buddy at the time, which was Joe Mazzulla, who's now on the coaching staff with the Boston yeah. Celtics. Now, Joe Mazzulla is a tremendous professional right now. He's clean cut. He, know, he knows the ins and outs of the business. He's going to be a great coach someday. But back then, Joe Mazzulla was nothing short of an absolute savage from another planet. Now, as you know, as a basketball player, and as you know, coaching guys, it's not enough to have that energy in yourself because I had that. You need somebody else to feed off of and to grow with. You know, when you come into practice every day with a snarl on your face, you can't have 15 other guys that are like moping around, uh, you know, because energy is contagious. Joe Mazzulla was the other guy that came in wanting blood every day. So, you know, we had three months of the offseason prepping for the year where I needed to want blood every day. And so Joe Mazzulla came in and fed off that energy with me. Anyways, what I'm trying to say is that that offseason was uh, certainly a product of my motivation and good things that I did, but it really came from the team that I had with me and behind me, the people that were involved, the right people in the right place at the right time. I, I love that whole thing about circumstances. That's, it's that, that, what you're saying is something I hope I could do for someone as a, as a coach in any way. But it's funny you mentioned Joe Mazzulla because I have him on LinkedIn. He has a nice picture of him and his family looking you know, smiling, all clean cut. And when you're, you're, that's why I laugh so much because you're saying he's a savage. I'm imagining like a totally opposite version of him. Ah, yo, uh, sometimes savage people, they, they become so savage that they realize they got to put it together. Gotcha. And that's a level of savagery too. So it is. No, definitely. That's definitely, uh, that's the, that's the next step. That's a, a great thing. Thinking about that. It's just obviously fun. I had to laugh at that. That was just too funny, uh, but it's yeah. awesome thinking about the mentors, right? That, that they got you on track. So you told us about the work that went into it. Now I just want to hear about like not putting you, you now you've got to put that product on the floor, like opening, like, you know, first game, what, what kind of, I mean, you're getting to unleash all this, all this new ability. What kind of happened? So we didn't have success early on. In fact, Bob Huggins took me aside a, a lot, many times on the team flights home. You know, you had a bad game. He's like yelling at you. I thought you were Kenyon Martin. That's what I thought you were, Joe Alexander. You're not, and you're never going to be in front of all my teammates who had my respect at the time. And now it's falling off a cliff. And I got to ride on the team bus and the team plane with him sitting diagonal behind me, knowing he's eyeballing me the whole time, shaking his head, this kid, you know, th this, this mother effort, this kid, Bob Huggins. Yeah. Saying that, saying this like over my corner, over my shoulder. I know he's, he's thinking that about me. And I'm thinking he's ready to replace me. So it was tough early on. Like we had early losses to Tennessee that we should have won. Well, I don't know if you remember those teams, quality teams back in the day. So we had a slow start. Like I said, I'm the king of slow starts, man. I, I needed time to put it all together. The beginning of the season was hell for me. Didn't start to click until about December, January. Luckily, by then, I had posted decent enough numbers that my season averages were good enough to, you know, plug into the NBA and say, oh, this guy, you know, had a good year. But, but really, the beginning of the season was rough, man. And I, I know you're coaching kids, and, and <laughs> I think just kids don't appreciate how guys that, that make it, you know, in the business, the magnitude of time that they spend in the dirt, man, just, just shove. Can I swear on this podcast? Oh, go for it. Go for it. Just shoveling shit, bro. And how did that season go? I shoveled shit for the first half of it. That's how it went. After all the hard work and all the promises and all the, oh, this is amazing and things are going to be great. I shoveled shit. That's the answer. Definitely. Wow. So that, that season, so capping it off, right? You fix your averages, right? You're, now, now you're becoming someone that's, that's high up on draft boards. What's the pre-draft process like for, for someone? Right? I mean, are you still shoveling some shit over there or is, is that a little bit better? All right. So, so I told you I grew up 
playing on dirt courts with nobody around, not playing five on five. But what I was doing is I was playing one on one. Let me tell you what I used oh, to yeah. do growing up. Okay. What I, let me tell you what I used to do. I used to come home from school, and by home, I, I mean I used to walk across from the school and get on the court immediately. And for about three, four, maybe five hours every day, anybody that walked in that gate where that court was, they, they weren't allowed to play. They had to come play me one-on-one. And I would take them one by one by one by one by one. Sometimes 10 guys, 20 guys in a day, just one by one by one. All I did was play one-on-one. And from the time I was in high school until the NBA draft, I knew I was the best one-on-one player in the whole world. And guys know that to this day at the pro level, to this day. All I had done my whole life was play one-on-one. I never played five-on-five. I never cared about it. And so when the NBA draft workouts came along and they threw us in the gym and they threw the ball out and I'm sitting there counting guys, I'm like counting heads. You know, there's six guys in here. Like, we're not about to hoop. What are we about to do? We're about to shoot a little bit. We shoot a little bit. And then afterwards, uh, they roll the ball out and say, guys, let's play ones. Oh, man. And I'm like, excuse me? Like, I just, I just hit the jackpot. Well, I just hit the lottery is what yeah. I was thinking. We play, we play ones. And I, I'm in workouts thinking like, okay, this guy might be a second round, maybe late second round. Maybe he needs to go back to school. And the coaches roll, roll the ball out to play ones. And they're like, this guy's the best player in the gym. And, and every player that I work out with who was supposed to be drafted ahead of me, suddenly I leapfrog them in the draft. And the reason is because in these pre-draft workouts, you don't play basketball. You play one-on-one. And I didn't know how to play basketball at the time. I knew how to play one-on-one. That's all I did. That's all I specialized in. Like, you know, basketball-wise, I was a, like a D3 player. But one-on-one-wise, I was like a gold medal Olympic, Olympian. So luckily, the pre-draft process was a process of playing a little bit of two-on-two, very few three-on-three, shooting three-pointers, and playing one-on-one. You know, I got in those workouts with Chase Budinger, and he's killing me shooting threes. You know, we're, we're shooting five spots. I remember he made 24 out of 25 at one point. I'm like, this is a travesty. But then we got to play on one-on-one and, uh, and everything changed for me. So it was a great, great, great experience. I wish I could do it again. Uh, do, you, do you still play a lot of one-on-one like to this day? Like, how does that look? Do you, I'm, yeah, yeah, that's I, all I, I do. That's all I do, bro. <laughs> nah, I, 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 I kind of knew what answer I was getting in that one. But, yeah, that's all you, I do, bro. Are you, playing, what, what about today? are you playing one-on-one after we get off the show? Look, man, uh, this week has been a, a jump rope only week because I'm addressing some injury stuff. Gotcha. And uh, it's been a great week, man. I love jump rope weeks. It means all I'm doing is working on quick feet. Okay. I love it. Jump rope, the jump, yeah, it's, it's such a good way to relax. I mean, you just feel so, I mean, you can't, you, once you learn a new trick and stuff and you just figure one out, you see something, right? Yo, I know you're world. plugged in immediately when you say learn a new trick. Right. I know you're plugged in, man. Yeah. Guys think, oh, jump rope, I'm out here to do cardio. No, 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 we're doing tricks. Yeah. That's the point. Maybe. Love that. No, it's, 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 it's when I was younger, my uncle, I was, I have no idea. I, I was always hitting my feet and my, my legs were always so scraped. And my uncle just said, okay, just keep going. Keep going. You'll eventually get a double under. My first double under, dude, I was, no one could talk to me for a week. You hit that first <laughs> double under. No one, no one's talking to me for, for, for a yes. week. Right? Once I got that. So it's awesome thinking about that. And right. I mean, thinking like, like that, that, that feeling, right. Like that, that, that really of accomplishment. And during this pre-draft process, right, I'm guessing you're feeling that right. Every step of the way, right. You're going, you're traveling to these cities, you're, you're dominating these one-on-one games. You're seeing yourself jump, you know, people on the phone, like, Oh my God, you know, you're, you're, you might be a first round pick. Now you might be a lottery pick. So the draft night, did you know you were going in the top 10 or did that, was that a super huge surprise? No, I knew, I knew I got called back to the Bucks to do a second workout and told before I went there, they're going to take you at the spot. So don't mess up this workout. Don't go in there trying to impress them. They just want to know if you're a psycho or not. So they're going to sit you down and interview you. And if you come out clean from that, they're going to take you. You might shoot a few jumpers. That's it. So they were number eight. So I knew that. But what I really thought, I thought I was going to go number six to the Knicks. But I'll tell you, my whole life would have changed if I did that. But I screwed that one up. See, I went back for a second workout with them also. There were only two teams that I went back twice. One was for the Knicks, one for the Bucks. Same situation at number six, who, who Gallinari went at that spot. They were like, Joe, this is your spot. 
They want to take you back to make sure you're not crazy. They put me through a small workout. And unfortunately, to be honest, I wasn't ready for it. In terms of, I went to the Bucks and I realized they're going to take me. I just got to shoot a few jump shots. I went to the Knicks. It wasn't the case. They brought other guys and we competed and I had stayed up late. I just wasn't ready. It was already a grueling schedule because you're traveling all the time, team to team. Yep. And, uh, and it didn't look good. And I think that if I wouldn't have botched that workout, I would have gone sixth. But I knew I was going in the top 10, which, dude, you know, do you know what it's like to go to bed knowing you're going to the top? That's crazy. You're used to dirt courts in Taiwan. That's wild. Exactly, bro. Yeah, yeah that's, that's insane. So, so you were given the more, you know, you're going top 10. It ends up happening at the draft lottery, the whole thing, right? The shaking the commissioner's hand. Like, I mean, what, like, I mean, now you see it, like, it's kind of like, so, so what we wearing on? Like, the whole, like, everyone's got the suits on draft night, shaking the commissioner's hand, interviews, everyone's crying. Like, what did that, how did the night go for you? Like, the night itself. So, so, so you try to pretend like you've been there before because everyone's giving off that vibe and you're trying to go, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. Someone's coming in here, Taylor in my suit. You know, they got these beautiful women like doing the suits. They're like touching you and like, oh, this is we're going to extend the arm length here and do this. And they're, they're ordering you all this stuff and you're in luxury places. And also you're meeting people that are huge names in the NBA. You never thought you'd meet in your life. And you got to act casual about the whole thing because there's someone around every corner. You know, David Stern's over here and your parents are wigging out and, and you're like, yo, yo, be cool, whatever. But the whole thing is surreal. And, and maybe the most surreal part is you got to act like you've been there before and you never have, you know, that, that was part of the crazy part to me. I got to stand on stage, pose into this picture. And meanwhile, I want to like, you know, swivel my head, like looking at these guys next to me, because I can't believe that I'm there. And, you know, but at the same time, another part of me and the reason that I'm there is going, I got to kill these guys. You know, that's the other part of it is that, you know, I had just come off a stint in college. Like I told you with that energy that Joe Mazzulla was helping me feed off of that. I was like, I don't care who's on the court. I don't care who's in front of me. I don't want to play. I don't want to be friends. I don't want to do nothing. I don't want to go home and sleep. I want to hoop and I want to cut throats. And so since that energy had been fostered and built upon for so many months, actually so many years, really, but really came to a crescendo after so many months, when I was in the NBA draft, even though my head was on a swivel, a little bit starstruck, that was probably my predominant feeling and emotion was I need to get on the court with these guys and get out of the suit. I'm sick of, I'm sick of smiling. I'm sick of shaking hands and smiling for pictures. I'm ready to get, get going. That's kind of where I was at with it. And, and a, we had little windows where we could do that because guys were working out during the draft weekend. Like, you know, me and Russ, me and Russell Westbrook, we had to go to a gym to do a workout. Me and Kevin Love and Russ, we, we went to do workouts with trainers because you're trying to stay sharp. Uh, you're getting ready for summer league. So all that, all that smiling for pictures and our dreams are coming true happiness there's a dark undertone underneath it, yep. which is we're, we're smiling at each other, but we're really smirking. Like I, I'm coming to get you boy. Like that's what, and for me, that's what it was. So I don't think I was able to enjoy it the way that a normal person would enjoy it. But the truth is a normal person wouldn't be there. So it's kind of, it's kind of ironic. You can't really experience it because to get there, you can't be yourself. You can't be a normal person. So that's that's incredible thinking about right having to having to kind of be something else to, to attain that level of of, of greatness or, or, or level of your craft is pretty cool and for those listeners that maybe don't know it's the 2008 draft so you mentioned guys like Westbrook and Kevin Love it's the 2008 draft we're talking about when you were a uh, number eight overall so you, you right then you met, go, went on to mention how like you have that kind of smirk I'm gonna get these guys was w- w- how would you rank that summer compare that summer to the summer before going to junior because that summer before going to junior was kind of crazy what was the summer going to your rookie year like uh, it was embarrassing. I'm embarrassed about it to this day. And it shows you how delicate your professional career is. So look, the only reason that I got to the pros, that I got to college, that I did what I did, any of it was because I never missed a day. Never. I never missed a 10 hour period. There was never an hour of my life where the alarm, alarm clock didn't click and say, Joe, what's next? What's next on the docket for the next workout? Because you can't rest. You can't relax. Everybody in the world is trying to get you and you got to get them. 
that was how I lived. I never took a day off. And also I never let anybody derail me and throw me on my schedule. Joe, let's go do this. Let's go travel. Joe, let's go to dinner. No was my answer at all times, every time. And very ironically, one of the very first times that I answered yes was when my agent told me, we're going to throw you a draft party. And it was one of the very first parties I've ever been to, believe it or not. And definitely the first in a very long time was my draft party after draft night. And if I could go back and do it all again, I would have stayed true to myself, which is I don't go to parties. I go to the gym. And that's where I should have been the night after the draft. The next thing that I said yes to that I normally would say no to is the Bucks called me up and said, Joe, we have a media day tomorrow for you celebrating you because of this music festival that happens in Milwaukee. We need you on a plane at two in the morning. And my immediate visceral reaction from habit was, I don't do that. I'm sorry. I go in the gym. This is what I do. I go to sleep. I go to the gym. I don't get on planes in the middle of the night to go do media, to go talk to people. No, I'm a workout junkie. That's it. And that's all, but it's the bucks and it's my new job. And keep in mind, I was coming off a weekend of smiling and shaking hands and, Oh, isn't this great? Isn't this great? And so I was kind of in that mode. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. And I didn't know I had the power at the time to tell them, no, that's what I should have done. But what I'm saying is it set a precedent that started to break down my habits that necessitate that were necessities for my success. And it, my entire off season was um, more of the same, unfortunately, more of the same. And I came into the season, what I would call a shell of myself, because I had allowed the magnitude of the NBA, the implications of the people who were talking to me, inviting me to things. I let it break down my habits of, of saying no. You know, it's one thing when your high school coach tells you, hey, can you go do this event? Or your college coach tells you, or, you know, your college, like a director of basketball operations tells you, hey, can you like not come to the gym tonight? They need to clean the floors. And you're like, I'll be there. They can sweep around me while I'm working out. And then it's another thing when Scott Skiles is telling you to do something, you do it. Or the GM who's your new boss tells you to do something, you do it. I wish I would have had maturity and presence of mind at the time to say, look, if I don't stay true to myself and what I do, I can't be successful here. So, so, so forget what you want. I'm going to do what I want. John, how old are you? 21. You're 21? Yeah. You're t- what? Yeah. Everyone's surprised, but yeah. <laughs> how old yeah, do you think mo- I was? Look, man, you look 21. Thank you. You're the most, you're the most articulate, impressive. I mean, what are you doing? You, you act like you're, you act like you're 27. That's, well, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to like be there. Well, I'm like, you know what? If I was 27 right now, it'd all be okay. But I my get the extra time to do. Thank you. My guy. Well, when you're 27, you'll be six years deep at being 27. So good. And that's so incredible thinking about like, right, like think, think about right. It's it's the, it's funny how you would always think that like the organizations or agents or people like that would always be pushing you to be your true self and always be working in the gym. But that might actually be where they're pulling you. People might be pulling you away from stuff like that. I mean, how important is it to surround yourself? I um, mean, maybe you figured it out later on, like in the months that followed. Okay, let me ease, like, like cancel out the noise, ease out those distractions, and focus on what's really what really I'm about. Like, how long did it, how long after that summer or those all those media appearances did it take you to figure that out for yourself? Man, I, I had had that figured out and down pat since I was 10 years old. It's the only reason I was in that position to, to forget it in the first place. Now, the issue was not that I didn't understand that. It was that I finally, for the first time in my life, let some people in. See, yeah. my whole life had been about, look, these people are not trying to go to the NBA. They're not in line with your goals, so keep them out. See, I always try to keep the right people around me so that I can feed off of their thoughts, their goals. I want, I want us to align and go in the right place. But I'd never had people in my life that I could align with because no one wants to go to the NBA. But finally, when I was in the NBA, I was like, oh, I can align with these people. Let them in. They might know what's best for me. They might be looking. And 
there was no malicious intent from anybody. In fact, everybody only wanted the best for me. It's my responsibility. You know, just like when I was 10 years old, 11 year old, 12 year old, it was my responsibility to keep the wrong people out, which was most people. It was still my responsibility in the NBA. I made the mistake of letting people pull me in this direction, that direction, that direction. It's no one's responsibility except my own to say, I can't go there. I got to go to the gym. I can't go there. I got to rest. I can't go there. I got to do my thing. I just let my guard down a little bit. And you know what? <laughs> like, of course, man, I was in the NBA. Yeah. Like I let my guard down just, just, just a little bit. And like I said, to begin this question that you asked me, that's how delicate it is. Go ahead. Let your guard down for a second. You'll be out. Done. It's that fragile. It's that competitive. Wow, that's incredible. a great message to those people, right? Staying focused, staying on that path. I saw that this one video. I mean, you still had like maybe some fun or you were able to stay some focused. I saw the video of your dunk contest tryout, right? I saw that on Twitter, this video oh, of you. Well, so oh, yeah. Talk about some of the, maybe those high moments where, you know, you were having fun with that. All right, so I was having fun, but it was a little embarrassing. It's definitely embarrassing looking back on it, especially my hair at the time, man. I was just young, and to be honest, I was so stressed at the time that I couldn't, you know, put one foot in front of the other. I was in the NBA. I was trying to deal with – the biggest thing I was trying to deal with was life on my own. You don't understand, but when you're in college, you are catered to, man. You have everything lined up schedule-wise, taken care of from food to class to your daily schedule. It's, it's all lined up for your housing, everything. And also you have people in place, roommates, teammates, coaches, everybody. But then suddenly you go to the pros, you're out on your own, man. And of course, you could choose to bring a team with you, bring people in you that can manage things. And you can bring the same people from college. But I wasn't aware of any of that enough to actually do it. So none of it fell into place. I was kind of on my own. And so I was having a tough time where I was very stressed. So even when the dunk contest thing came along, it was a dream come true for me. Man. I want to be in the dunk contest. Like, of course, I worked my whole life for this. Like, all I do is work on jumping and plyometrics. And I'm an elite athlete right now. I want to be in the NBA dunk contest. But I was so stressed at the time because I was like, I'm trying to get it done on a court. So we're filming these commercials. And to be honest, I was hearing people whisper around the practice facility and around the NBA, around the league. Like, what's, what's Joe Alexander, this lottery pick, doing, you know, playing the guitar on these commercials, trying to get in the dunk contest. He's working on his game and focusing on that. And I agreed with them at the time. You know, but this was another one of those cases where I was like, you know, the NBA is telling me like it's dunk contest time. And I didn't feel like I was too young at the time to feel like I could assert myself in those situations. It's kind of like being a freshman on the basketball team. Like they tell you be here at this time. And you're like, what can I do? Fight it? That's what I felt like in the NBA. Uh, like for the dunk contest, the same situation. So I was trying to enjoy it. But to be honest, I was too stressed out at the time because my season wasn't going well. I couldn't really enjoy it. Uh, looking back, I wish I would have been in it. Because I would have won. I would have taken that trophy wow. home, no question about it. It kind of was. It's not your spoiling because it would have happened thirteen. But what, what would that? What would that like? What would you have prepared for it? Like what? What kind of would have been your go-to? You know what? I was know, prepared. I had all my dunks one set dunk up. to win it. What's what's gonna? What's what's that dunk to win it? I had all my dunks set up already. What were they? I was gonna do an alley oop, okay. windmill, honey dip, which nobody's ever seen before. Oh yeah, that's yeah, especially back then. No, no one. No one had ever seen before. And I was going to do between the legs behind the back. You know what? No one had done. Like now you can watch Team team Flight Brothers do that kind of stuff. You can watch like uh, Killian do that kind of stuff. There's Because dunking has become something that's departed from basketball. It's a new art. Yep. But back then nobody was doing that stuff. And I was going to dunk from the free throw line off of two steps. No way. From like four, two steps. You had like the three-point line at that Started point? the three-point line with, wow. with my toes on the three-point line. I was going to take one, boom dunk from the free throw line, which I can do. I can't do it now. I'm 35 years old, but then I could do it. Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. I'm going to take wow. two steps. But I'm going to take home that trophy. Anyways, what, is it, what does it do to talk about it? Except what good does it do to talk about it? Except I like to smile in my life and to think about it makes me smile. So that's it. Well, so how many dunk contests have you been in since then? Of the, any overseas? Or? None, none, none. You just keep it, just keep it, just keep it I to yourself. I carry with me the bitterness 
of not being, I mean, when, what I'm going to not be in the NBA dunk contest, then I'm going to go be in some dunk contest somewhere else. I, I, I don't care anymore. From then I was content to just throw it down on guys' heads. That's it. You guys know I can jump in the story. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very Westbrook quote. He's like, I, I don't dunk. I don't dunk. I dunk, I dunk on people. Not on, not on dunk on yeah, I dunk on people, man. I dunk on people. That's it. That's what I you do. Know, if you haven't seen, I mean, just type in Joe Alexander. Just type in Joe Alexander dunk poster, whatever. It'll come up on. It'll be. They'll see ten videos on YouTube of it. So for I'll tell you what. Series, in the dark behind the curtain lurks all the real highlights that nobody will ever see. They exist in my mind and in the mind of the defenders who are like this and guys in practice. It all went down in practice. All gotcha. went down in practice. Look, I used to have a whiteboard on my teams. And I used to write guys' names. And by the end of the season, I wanted everybody's name to be on that whiteboard with a little tally mark next to them. How many times I dunked on them in practice? That's what I did. Practice was where I dunked on guys' heads. And they knew every day coming into practice, I better get out of Joe's way. So that's cool. So, see, it's funny. You were talking about how, like, the, you, the Bucks couldn't know you were a psychopath. But, like, if they knew about that, maybe they wouldn't, they wouldn't think that you were a psychopath. You know, it's just like something from, like, a, from, like, the Joker from Batman, like, tallying how many guys you dunked on. It's pretty crazy, but it, it's funny. Like, that, it's funny and it worked. So that's pretty cool thinking about that. I think his character in Batman like tallied every time he did something. So similar thing. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but really cool thinking about, I mean, dunking on people at practice, all that stuff. I mean, what was maybe, okay. So obviously I would imagine it happened in practice a lot, but in game, what was your, what was your, what was your greatest in-game dunking game or on someone? My greatest in-game dunk, I don't know if there's any footage of it. It was in the D-League when I, we were playing against Austin, who we had a rivalry with. We used to come, everyone came out for blood when we played against Austin. So I was playing for Texas, for, for de- the team in Dallas. We had great teams. So the actual, the NBA teams, when they are anticipating that game, they would send guys down. Austin would send down Danny <laughs> Green. They would send down like three guys for no reason, just to, just to beat us. There was a time where we were competing for a playoff spot and we just needed one win to get in and they were already out. They weren't even in contention and they sent down four guys. That's just why. So that we, just so we couldn't get to the playoffs. And I mean, we had Rashad McCants. We had Sean Williams from Boston College. We had Justin Denton. We had Booker Woodfoot. Like we were, we were an animal team. We had Antonio Daniels. Our head coach was Nancy Lieberman. Yo, we were a monster team. Anyways, great days. But to answer your question, it was an accident. I drove baseline and I fumbled the ball on the way up. So I windmilled it and, and dunked it on the, and of course you don't expect somebody to windmill when they're going to dunk. So he had his hands up. He was ready to block that. And he was their center. He was 6'11". I can't remember his name. He was a, he was a French uh, Cameroon player, good player. Had his hands up ready to block it. I fumbled a little bit. So I windmilled, boom, right on his head. That was my best dunk in the game. It was an accident. So I can't, can't really say that I tried to do it, but I'll take that one to the grave. Windmill dunk on a seven-footer on his head, boom. Yeah. So I'm gonna have to, so we, we have some we have some guys here at Gen Z Hoops are at two-way, which is our other kind of show that are G League like fanatics, watch all like, like like guys that are really dialed into it, that have been watching it since, you know, since that you probably dunked on that guy. So I'm gonna reach out to some of them and see if they can dig it up. Get that I'm, footage, bro. I'm I getting it, it for you. I'm gonna, it, it might be on like, cause he told me, he said like some of the footage from like before it became the G League is kind of grainy, kind of like on an iPhone. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, but if I, if I, it's still, it's still there. So even if it's like one pixel of you doing it, it's still, it's still there. We I want that one pixel, bro. I got you, I got you with that. I'm, I'm gonna make some calls after this show's over. Okay, so I was thinking about right, all these all these crazy dunks. Like, I, I haven't seen it, but I'm just imagining my head, and it's, it looks it looks beautiful. It's a it's, it, it just right. The imagination right is, is awesome in that sense. But right, we we were talking about the NBA. We we're talking about a lot of those dunks. The cool, I mean, one of the things that I think would be super monumental to your life would be that transition going from the NBA to life overseas. And right, you would already. It's funny. I mean, for you, did you even see it like that because you grew up overseas? Like you grew up in uh, playing on dirt courts. Like, did you even see it as going overseas? Or did you see it as kind of going, you know, back to maybe what you were familiar with? Nah, I saw it as a sabbatical because, uh, you know, there was so much emotion wrapped up in the whole process because all I ever saw with blinders on my whole life was the NBA. So anything that was a departure from that was just a, a little stint where I had to work harder, learn a little bit so I could get back. So when I like went overseas, for me, it was just like going to the D League. It was just like, 
you know, take a summer off, you're injured, you got to come back. I didn't think of it as like, I'm going overseas. If you would have told me then that I was going to be over here for the next, you know, seven years, I was, I would have spit aggressively in your face. That's what I would have done. So when I came overseas, I was of the mentality that I'm not going there, man. I'm going there for, for three months to dominate, you know, to come back, whatever that is. So I didn't think of it like, you know, am I comfortable here? Or am I not? But I was not comfortable to answer your question. I, 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 you know, when you go overseas, you're all by yourself. You know, you don't bring your family with you and you don't bring the opportunity for people to come visit you that only live an hour or two away. You're alone. And people don't understand what it's like to be alone in a country where you don't know people, you don't know the culture, you, you know, you don't know how to read labels at a grocery store. You don't know how to navigate, how to get around, what apps to download that are the equivalent of Uber. You don't know nothing. And it's not a good feeling. And unless you're performing well on the basketball court, it's really difficult to overcome those negative feelings. And so for me, it was not a good experience. It didn't become a good experience until years later that I learned what to do. And if I could have like one, if I could have like five prayers in my basketball life, one of them would have been that I would have had some knowledge to understand how to acclimate in Europe better. Man, that's what I, what I would have wished for because most of my career has been played in Europe. You know, the NBA is such a great punctuation mark for my career that everybody likes to focus on. But really, I'm a European pro and I didn't learn the European game until halfway through my stint over here. Same with what would have happened in the NBA. If I would have stayed in the NBA, I wouldn't have learned how to really, you know, succeed there until halfway through. I, I never had the opportunity to do that. But in Europe, I wish I would have plugged in immediately instead of thinking I'm just in a pit stop until I go back to the NBA. Definitely makes so much sense in, in thinking about it that way. And you, you've mentioned a lot of times going back to like, you know, being alone and not having family with you or, 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 or you know, college, how you were taken care of and it's different than the NBA. Did, I, I'm curious whether it's family, whether it's teammates. I mean, did your family come over when you were in college or when you were in the league or were they still in Taiwan? Did your teammates, did any teammates ever come with you overseas? Like how did that look? look you like, see this, like, see this motion right here. You know what this is? This is pushing, this is pushing people away. Okay. This God. is how, this is how you get, to where you're going in life. When people want to visit you, who their job is, they work in construction. People want to visit you that their job is, you know, they work at whatever. Maybe they're real successful in real estate, whatever. I don't do that. I'm a basketball player and you don't understand what I do and nobody does. Get away from me. So uh, the only reason I say that is, man, I wish I could have connected more with my family, more with my friends. I wish I would have made more friends, connected more with my teammates. People come visit me. Yeah, come see me overseas. But the truth is, the truth is, here's the truth, man. You want to be a professional basketball player? you are isolated from the world. And the degree to which you're isolated is the degree to which you are not a natural player because natural players can get away with a lot. If you're Allen Iverson, you can get away with not going to practice. Like think about the extreme to which that is a departure from the normal procedures people need to be successful in the game. There's guys that are not naturals in any respect. They need to be on point as a disciplinarian with themselves. Everything needs to be in order every single day. And you can't do that with people visiting you People taking up your time, pulling you in this direction and that. So no, people were not visiting me. They wanted to, but I would push them away. It was something that majorly contributed to a negative quality of life in many ways, but at the same time contributed to success on the basketball court, which in the broader sense of things creates a positive quality of life. So, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. So no is the answer. People weren't visiting me. Gotcha. But I mean, at some point, right, you said it took you like six years, but at some point it, it clicked overseas and you understood the European game. You understood what like, it was like overseas. Like what kind of, I mean, it's been like maybe like five years since then, right, if I'm doing my math correctly. But what's, what's how, the, what are those, how those, those, those last years been for you? Like building a family, right, getting, getting comfortable overseas, kind of like living out, figuring out how to live that dream overseas. It's been bittersweet as someone who can't let go of the dream of playing in the NBA while still having to, it's always bittersweet to have success outside of it because you know that it pulls you further away from what you actually wanted. 
And, you know, as a basketball player, if you're honest with yourself, as a person, if you're honest with yourself, it's always going to hurt. But with that, with that said, the lighter side of things is it's been amazing. It's been amazing to find success in Europe because people in America, you know, they think that you can, you leave the NBA, go somewhere else and dominate. Doesn't happen. They think, oh, the NBA is basketball. The NBA is pro basketball. Overseas is some kind of weird amateur. No, no. Guys come over here thinking it's a cakewalk and they get sent right back to where they came from. Like it's a grind over here. Like you wouldn't believe the elite of elite of elite of elite. Nobody in Europe plays at a high level who isn't, uh, you know, one fraction of a step away from the NBA. And so to be successful over here, to find success has been something that I have valued, like just beyond almost as much as I valued the NBA, you know, because it was so difficult to find success here. It, much more difficult than finding success in college, man. Like you go to college, you go to a big time D1 school. You're like, I'm playing for John Beeline, Bob Huggins. I hope one day I can start. It's going to be such a monumental uphill climb. It's five times that in Europe, five times that it's, it, it was so difficult. And at the same time, so rewarding, you know, that's the best way to sum it up. I love right, the biggest way, so difficult, but so rewarding. It all really paints a picture of, of how this is all kind of played out for you. Recently, I've seen you, right? You've been taking a huge presence on YouTube, right? You started this YouTube channel. Can you tell me a little bit about that and kind of how you're kind of, I see you smile, right? What's, what's happening there? Uh, I, I mean, everyone's asking me about it. Like I'm doing something. Like I'm not doing something. Like, like I just talk, like basically I just put a camera in the corner and like every once in a while I just go click it on and I talk. Like that's it. Like I love to talk about hoops but not the kind of hoops that people are used to hearing about. Like, I don't talk about hoops like, okay, let's go into so-and-so's living room. We're going to play a little video games and debate about who the GOAT is. Like, I hate talking that kind of hoops. No problem. Most people like that stuff. My teammates all like that stuff. I don't participate. Like, I have a beer and I go home. Like, I talk about hoops in a different way. I talk about what kind of skills and habits do you need in life to be a successful professional basketball player outside of the court. That's what I like to talk about. And when I call my buddies up, my friends, and I'm like, hey, let's talk about basketball. They know what we're going to get into. They know we're going to talk about the soup of life as it relates to the game. I'm going to tell them, hey, man, I'm renting this apartment that has space in the living room so I can put mats down and jump rope. And it's only 500 meters from the gym. See, I'm using meters. I've been here a while. It's 500 meters <laughs> from the gym, bro. And so I got to connect with so-and-so from the city to make sure I can use the gym to do that. I can get my jump rope done here. Like that's the kind of logistics of the life of basketball that I like to discuss and even more, much more into the, the technical details and the nuances of it. And so I put this camera in the corner and I was like, you know what? If I was a young kid trying to play professional basketball, that's the stuff I need to hear. I don't need to hear people sitting on the couch debating about who's better, LeBron or Michael Jordan. I don't need that garbage in my life. I needed someone to talk about the stuff that I know after a, a decade and a half of playing professional basketball. So I was like, somebody out there somewhere in the world, some kid who was just like me that's grown up on another planet of basketball, doesn't have access, doesn't have nobody. They want to learn this stuff and they need to. And I was like, what's it to me? I just push play and put it on the internet. It's nothing to me. So I was like, you know, I'm a basketball purist, man. I love the game. I've been a junkie my whole life. Like I haven't been about nothing about except basketball. So I was like, man, I'm 35. I got, I got some spare time. I can give back a little bit. And already some people have reached out to me and been like, man, this helps. Like, tell me this, tell me that, tell me that. And I'm like, yeah, no problem. Like, I don't got to write no scripts. I can, I can spit all this off the dome. Like I know it like the back of my hand. So let's do it. So it, it's been really fun. And um, so, yeah, I've been posting it to YouTube. It's been rewarding. I like it. I'm, I'm going to keep going. You know, I posted like, like 30 videos in a month. I just started and I'm like, man, I can post like 500 of these. Really my only hope, I want some kids to contact me in five, 10 years and be like, bro, I'm, I'm about to get drafted. And this started 10 years ago when I started watching your stuff. Like, that's what I want. Because when I was a kid, that's what I wanted. I was dying for somebody to, to help me. And, and I, there was no YouTube. There was no nothing. 
I love, you're being the role model you wish you had. That's, I think that's a quote I've heard often, right? Be the, be the person you wish you had when you were younger. So you're kind of doing that for the next generation. Uh, wrapping things up, what's one thing you would, you would kind of, I mean, outside of the video, right, you're, you're doing more than one thing. You're doing 500, as you said, 500 videos, hopefully, to help like a, a six-year-old, seven-year-old in, in Taiwan who's made, you know, dunking on people. You know, maybe he's, he's good, but he's a couple of years. What, did you, what was your first dunk, by the way? Just a quick side note. What was your first dunk? Uh, sophomore year, I was six foot three. Gotcha. Okay, cool. But still, right? Like thinking about, right? Like, so taking it back even a little further than that, right? You're young, maybe right before you, before all the dunking, before all the handshakes with the commissioner, before all the contracts overseas, what's something you would tell that, that, that person that, that you didn't get to, get, uh, you, you unfortunately didn't get told? Wow. Like I said, I could make 500 videos an hour each talking about this stuff. So, so to find a magic bullet is very difficult. And that's one thing I try to tell people is that I'm not here to teach magic bullets. I'm teaching you tools and your tool belts. And often I'll teach you one thing and then it's exact opposite and express the necessity of both sides. You know, the dichotomy that exists between them and the need for having both and having the discernment to know which to pull out at what time. The whole landscape is complicated and nuanced. And, and that's what becoming a master is, is abstaining from the temptation to look for magic bullets. But I only say that with, with this, I only say that as a caveat because I'm about to tell you the magic bullet. <laughs> so kind of ironic, but if I'm a kid and I need to learn one thing to get on my path to the NBA, it's this, challenge yourself every day as much as humanly possible. That's the magic bullet, challenge yourself. And I know that sounds shallow and something that you've heard before, you know, most kids have heard all the information that they need to hear before. They just haven't let it hit them at a visceral level because they need to hear it in conjunction with experience and the, the two sort of mold together and grow organically until you really get something and digest it. You know, as a very, very, very rudimentary starting platform, I would say, get in the habit of challenging yourself every day. Don't let yourself get off the hook. Like when I said, Bob Huggins put his arm around me and said, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm going to come at you every day and make sure you're the best player. You got to be that Bob Huggins for yourself every day. You got to go into every day saying, I'm going to challenge myself. Uh, I can certainly say that's something that I did every day, a habit that, that really encompassed like my everyday experience in my whole life. It's the reason that I went anywhere in basketball. So if, if a kid wanted a magic bullet, that's what I would say. And if, if they want something more than a magic bullet, then uh, tap into my channel, I guess. I don't know. Well, so I hopefully a lot of times I'll get four or five texts after I post an episode of people saying this really helped me. I think I'm going to get, might even get a few more than that this time. So I'll definitely be forwarding those messages to you. Yeah. That's what I want, bro. That's what we want. I got you. Yeah. I, I, we want to empower the people, bro. We want to impact. Let me tell you what, let me tell you what we want. We want to get people out of this cycle where their body starts to say, yo, I want to be a pro hooper. Like I want to get good. I want to get better. And what do they get tossed up and caught up in when they go online, when they go out with their buddies, when they get, what do they get tossed up in idol worship? Oh, Steph Curry. Oh my God. James Harden. Like what is all the basketball conversation centered around? It's around this idol worship of guys that are naturals that you can never be like if you tried in a million years, there's other stuff out there that you need to learn in order to get better. And if you could just get all the mainstream basketball nonsense out of your head, the only way to do that is to get in touch with real pros that actually did it. Like that's what you got to do. And, and you got to have people that are willing to and able to articulate what they did. They aren't naturals because naturals can't articulate it. Anyways, that's what we're doing here, man. That's how you, that's how you really help guys. Thanks for listening to Gen Z Hoops. Make sure to follow, like, and subscribe on Instagram, LinkedIn, and all major social media platforms at Gen Z Hoops. You can tune in and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and every other podcast platform on the planet. Get ready for the next episode.